Tonight's reading is Romans chapter 2, and it can be found on page 148 of your Bibles. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with the truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realise that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impertinent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For he will repay according to each one's deeds. To those who, by patiently doing good, seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. While for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. When Gentiles, who do not possess the law, do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, to which their own conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relation to God and know his will and determine what is best because you are instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, that teach others, will you not teach yourself? When you preach against stealing, do you steal? You that forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You that abhor idols, do you rob temples? You that boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
Circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if those who are uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law, will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you that have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. Such a person receives praise not from others, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sally. Um, Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that we would hear from your word this evening. Uh, You would give us ears to hear and a willingness to respond. Amen. I've had this experience a few times now, and I don't know if anyone can sympathise. We've already eaten a meal as a family, and we've decided to watch a film. So we've got a full stomach, uh, and we've sat down, and for atmosphere, we have to turn off all the lights as well. And then the the film's a bit slow to start, and before long, the inevitable has happened, and I've fallen asleep. And then a little bit later, for whatever reason, I'll suddenly come to and wake up. I'll see what's going on in the film. I thought, whoa! I'll look around and see if anyone else in the family is still conscious. And say, what's going on? I thought you said this was a comedy. Why has she got a gun and killed Granny? What on earth has happened? Well, diving into our reading in Romans 2 today, you might feel a little bit like that. You've woken up in a film and you're not quite sure what on earth has happened. If you were here last week, you heard um, Cam's introduction to the book of Romans and how Cam introduced Paul, or Saul as he used to be, the whole idea of him being an apostle, an apostleship, and of being a messenger. And that Paul's message was good news, it was gospel. He says in chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. First to the Jew and also to the Greek, for in in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. For as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. So that all sounded quite encouraging. It might be helpful to catch hold of your Bibles if you haven't got them, have Romans 2 open in front of you, because it was quite a long reading uh, and we'll be jumping around a little bit in it. We are, believe it or not, still hearing the gospel, the good news from Paul. It is still good news. The power of God for salvation of everyone who has faith. But before we can get to the salvation bit, we have to hear about what we're being saved from. Now I think possibly modern Western society as a whole might feel a bit uncomfortable with the idea of divine judgment. And that's perhaps seeped into the church as well. And it's not because society thinks that justice is unimportant, but in fact quite the opposite. If you pick up a newspaper, it might well say something like, something must be done. Those responsible for these acts must be brought to account. Sentences should reflect the seriousness of the offence. But that's for bad people, isn't it? The rest of us, most of us are fine, aren't we? 
It's not like I've killed anyone, is it? The idea of divine judgment, it might seem a bit old-fashioned, and it's perhaps not something we like to think about overmuch, particularly when it comes to concern ourselves. As creatures, we want justice. That, that need for justice is written on our hearts, as we heard here. That actually, the law is written on our hearts, and our conscience pricks us that there is a right and wrong. After a terrible crime, we, we might wish for an absolutely just God, one who will, as Paul says, judge the secret thoughts of all. But for me, I'm not so bad. Perhaps if I don't examine my thoughts and words and deeds too closely, then maybe I'm kind of okay. But Paul won't have it that way. Not for you, nor for me, nor even for himself, or indeed anybody else. And this evening, I'd like to us to think about three things. Should we go to the next three? Three things, three ideas that we might be tempted to put our trust in when facing this idea of judgment that makes us think that we'll get away with it, as it were. In this passage, Paul is challenging this young church in Rome that they seem to be trusting in ideas that simply won't stand, that won't do. This chapter, and indeed the whole testimony of Scripture, shows us that none of these three things are worthy of our trust. None will give us the sort of of get-out-of-jail-free card that we might hope for. Firstly, then, don't let us trust in our own good deeds, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Secondly, don't trust in just being better than other people. Judging others only actually condemns us further. And thirdly, don't trust in your own background. Don't trust in being particularly religious. The people of Israel thought that their history and genealogy was enough, but it isn't, and it wasn't, and it isn't. Now, as a visual aid, I've got three slightly unusual objects here. Um, just to try and emphasise these three different things. The first one here is the standby nativity favourite of the tinsel halo. Now, I actually made it. As Lizzie pointed out, it's quite a good Christmas game. It's it's an aerobie wrapped in tinsel. But here is my halo. And my halo, it's it's fine, actually. For children to wear the nativity, it's all good. But for this evening, it's not something to trust in. So, this represents trusting our own goodness, our own works. Now, I don't think anyone's going to take me seriously if I keep it on my head, so I'll pop it down there. So. You might not take me seriously, anyway. But the end of chapter 1, in verse 29, because we started this chapter with therefore, which always makes me immediately have to flick back a page. But in chapter 1, in, in verse 29, Paul describes how humanity has strayed from the design that the loving creator had for each and every one of us. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, he says. Every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents. That's very important, that one. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And here Paul is describing humanity as a whole, not just the people of Israel, not the Jewish believers in Rome. Most of the believers in Rome weren't Jewish. He's describing actually all of, all of mankind. Um, and it's tempting to kind of imagine that if we've refrained from the big headline sins, 
murder or genocide, that, that actually we're doing, kind of doing okay, really. And taken out of the context of the whole letter and the whole of the Bible, it almost looks like Paul's saying that <clears throat> you can be saved by doing your own works, by having a shiny enough halo and having done enough good things yourself, then, then you don't need to worry about judgment. In verse 6 he says, For he will repay according to each one's deeds. To those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. While those who are self-seeking, who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. But if you look at the whole letter, the chapters that precede it and follow it, it doesn't seem that Paul really fancies our chances very much on that. Down in chapter 3, he emphasises this, and he says, no human being will be justified in God's sight by deeds prescribed by the law, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you want a full treatment of that chapter, you can come back next week, and Simon's trained professional will be taking us through it. So if all have sinned, that includes us as well. So trusting our own good works and the shyness of our halo won't be the answer when we face judgment. Thankfully, though, I've had a quick look around the congregation, and I think generally in the world as well, in general, actually, I think I'll be okay, because there's lots of other people who've done worse than me. And actually, it's tempting to sort of take, our, take my talk with me and... Um, sit in the judgment seat, sit down in the seat of judgment. Which brings me to the second temptation. Don't trust in being better than other people. I couldn't find a judge's gavel, um, so I had to use a claw hammer instead. I'm very concerned about damaging the furniture, so I will um, bring the court to order with a rubber handle instead. But this is my judge's gavel. brings me on to the next temptation, judging others. And Paul started his chapter with a warning about judging other people. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things, that's the list of sins that I've just read out from the end of chapter 1, but those who do such things, and yet you do them yourself, you'll escape the judgment of God. So if we judge others' actions as wrong, we acknowledge that there is a right and a wrong, and that judgment is just but we pretend that we are faultless ourselves. And the picture that springs to mind, or that springs to my mind, is the teaching of Jesus. And one of his recurring themes within his teaching that he challenges his listeners with, and that is the religious hypocrite. In particular, I want us to just briefly consider one of his parables, and it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You can find it in Luke chapter 18, you might want to look at it later. And essentially, two men go up to the temple to pray. The first one's a Pharisee, so he's from a, a member of an ancient Jewish sect that was distinguished by being particularly strict in adhering to the observance of the law. The other one was a tax collector. Now, some of you, like me, may have grown up in a church where the authorised version of the King James Bible was used, and this other person was referred to as a publican. Now, for many years, this bothered me greatly, because I'm quite a big fan of pubs, and uh, I was really worried that the go-to, the first century go-to archetype of a sinner was a pub landlord. Uh, thankfully, though, actually, it's just a change in the word in English usage, and actually it's a tax collector, which, again, as we were having a discussion amongst ourselves earlier, doesn't mean anyone employed by HMRC, you're fine too. 
Anyway, the Pharisee stands up and he prays like this. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector stood far off and he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Instead, he was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his home justified rather than the other one. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. It's also been pointed out that the Pharisee, when the Pharisee prayed, he asked for nothing, and he got it. Judging others not only condemns ourselves, but it makes a mockery of God's mercy. When we sit in judgment, we are saying that we don't need forgiveness ourselves. Don't you realise, Paul says in verse 4 of of chapter 2, don't you realise that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Thirdly, and finally, we might be tempted to trust in our background. Uh, Our long association with the church, perhaps, the impressive number of Christian books that we've read, perhaps being an early uptaker of the offer of baptism, Uh, attendance at Sunday services, listening to worship songs in the car, even if you have a non-Christian friend with you. That's pretty good. None of these things are in fact bad. In fact, they're all very good. But separated from a trust in Jesus, they're no more to be relied upon than any other background we could mention in terms of escaping God's righteous judgment. And to represent this, I've brought along a book that I was presented with on the occasion of my own confirmation. It made me feel quite old. It's Whit Sunday, 14th of May, 1989, from Nigel, suffragette bishop of Taunton. Um, just, I've looked through it since, actually. It's a slightly strange book to give someone on their confirmation because it seems that now you've given your life to Jesus, you've put your trust in him for your eternal salvation, the main thing that you really need to know is the names of various clerical vestments. (laughs) First and foremost, as long as you know the difference between a cotter and a surplus, then you're doing pretty well. Nick also pointed out to me, and I'll have to, it won't work up close, but I'll show you at the end that actually, if you want to draw what an Anglican vicar should look like, is in fact the Reverend Canon Mark Brown. (laughs) There he is in all his glory. Anyway, sorry, that's an aside. Um, in Romans, <laughs> early modeling, modeling career, in Romans, Paul is saying something perhaps even more surprising and powerful than all those other things I've listed. He's talking to the Jews. And he says, even God's chosen people couldn't rely on Israel's covenant with God to escape judgment. And the impact of just how shocking a statement that is, has probably lessened over the last two millennia. We go, yeah, all right then. But the Jews were God's chosen people, and he had a special covenant with them. They'd been entrusted with the law, a codified version of what was right and what was wrong. And they had this covenant, in the, in the, <clears throat> had a sign of it in the form of circumcision, a, an outward sign in the flesh of this special relationship that they had with him. Yet despite this, Paul says that it won't do them any good. Jew and Greek, and not just Greek, that means a Gentile, anyone who's not a Jew, Jew and not a Jew, 
are to be judged alike. If God is truly just, he can't have favourites that he's just going to let off the hook, as it were, while the rest of humanity is to be judged. Knowledge of the law, or indeed, for that matter, ignorance of the law, is no protection from God's righteous judgment. Sally read here in verse 12, all who've sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who've sinned under the law, the Jewish people who knew the law, will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the doers who are justified. And just like when the Pharisees and Sadducees went to go and see John the Baptist and asked to be baptised, he, he gave them short shrift and, and John said to them, do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our ancestor. I tell you that God can raise up ancestors from Abraham from these very stones. So why then have a chosen people? Why invest in Israel? Why have this covenant relationship with Israel if it doesn't mean that they don't face judgment? Why have the covenant with them? And what does it mean for us who are Christ's church now? Paul hints at this even as he rebukes his fellow Jews in, from verse 17 and the following verses. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relation to God and know his will and determine what's best because you're instructed in the law, and if you're sure that you're a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of truth and knowledge, you then that teach others will not teach yourselves. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You, uh, you that forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You that abhor idols, do you rob temples? You that boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because you've brought his name into disrepute because you're doing these things. The Jewish people had their privileged position in the end, not for their own good, not so they were fine and they were sorted, but to bless other nations. They are the shepherd people, C.S. Lewis's phrase for them. They're the shepherd people there to bless others. They were to be guides to the blind to those people who hadn't seen or experienced God in the way that the Jewish people had, they were to guide them. They were to be a light to those living in darkness. Correcting foolish errors, teaching other people how to live as the Creator intended all of us to live. So if now we are the church are fulfilling something of that role of Israel, is this how we see our ministry in the world, to be those things that Paul said that they were not? So what should we say then? When faced with a just and holy God, if we're not to trust in our own good works, the own shininess of our halo, or in judging others, sitting in the seat of judgment, or even in our religiousness, our general churchiness, if you like, what are we to trust in? Well, Paul is getting to that, and I'd encourage you to keep coming on a Sunday evening because we're going to keep looking at the rest of Romans as he reveals the salvation that's coming. But I will give you a little sneak preview from chapter 5, and I don't feel too bad because I'm talking chapter 5 as well, so it's only myself that I'm robbing here. While we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And God proves his love for us that whilst we were still sinners... Christ died for us, and having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life, not ours, but his.
In the midst of all this talk of judgment that we've heard, Paul shows us that actually God is fully just, but also truly merciful. He offers us kindness and forbearance and patience. And the response to that is gratitude and praise. And as such, I'll hand you back to James now as we lead our response of praise to him.